Well, here we are in 2023. Who would have thought that we are 23 years beyond the turn of the millennium? And here we are. How many brothers and sisters have forsaken the way in those last 23 years? How many have fallen asleep in Christ? 23 years since the turn of the millennium, and we are still here. How much longer will the world go on before we're taken away? Surely, brethren, it can't be too far in the distant future. We, we pray that the year may see the return of our Lord, and we shall rejoice with him in glory and power. You know, in the last 12 months or so, the world has become, in fact, increasingly nervous, increasingly feeling a sense of foreboding. And really, I guess it's, it's symbolised by what's known as the doomsday clock. It's now shifted to 90 seconds, a minute and a half to midnight. Never before has that clock actually reached anywhere near that kind of time. A time of unprecedented danger. Now, if the world is worried and frightened by these things, it's precisely as our Lord predicted that men's heart would fail them for fear for what is coming upon the earth. And, and that is symbolic of, of our society, this sense of tension and foreboding. And what's brought that to a head is, is the threat that Putin has used recently in threatening chemical warfare and nuclear warfare, limited though it may be, and all of a sudden the world's on edge. China and India traded blows last year, came very close to, to using nuclear weapons as well. And all of that pushed the clock on another 30 seconds in the light of the world. In addition to that, we find that the West has decided to give Ukraine tanks and additional weapons. And as this particular article, The Guardian, pointed out, that, that what that does is, is that that brings the West into the conflict with Russia. Tanks need tank crews. Tank crews need training. Tanks need maintenance, all which are supplied by the West. And the West now is injecting itself by proxy into the Ukrainian war. And, of course, the reaction from Putin was as expected. Furious at the decision to escalate, to go beyond a red line. And all of that increases the tension and this sense of foreboding that the world feels. And to add fuel to the fire, we know from Ezekiel 38 that, that Iran, the Persia of Ezekiel 38, is in alliance with Russia. And we've seen the last year, brothers and sisters, this tremendous bonding between these two countries, keen to escape sanctions, keen to devise ways around the Western grip of economic sanction. Iran giving drones to Russia, using them very effectively, Russia supplying advanced weaponry to Iran. And that will only increase as the world spins into this sense of fear. And what about His Holiness the Pope? Well, just a few days ago, he came out to say that uh, homosexuality wasn't such a bad thing. He then had to re retract that and explain that. And he said that being homosexual is not a crime. It's not a crime. Yes, it's a sin. But first, let's make a distinction between sin and crime. Now, this is, this, is, this is the double speak of the Catholic Church. This is the mouth of the false prophet. Madden spirits coming out of this, this, this double speak. But, but an attempt by the Catholic Church to receive the vote of the LGBTQ plus vote. And that will continue as that evil permeates society. And Israel itself, we have a new right-wing government. Never before has this most right-wing government actually been put together, and Netanyahu is back in the reins of power. But not, not as all well in Israel. There have been huge protests in Tel Aviv. Netanyahu wants to tinker with the judiciary, wants to change the law so that it's more favourable for the people he wants to bring into power, and that has caused Israeli society to erupt. But the danger at the moment, brethren and sisters, is the eruption of violence in the Middle East, the increasing sense of despair amongst the Palestinian people. They see a right-wing government in power. Their own Palestinian authority is weakened. 
doesn't have the capacity to be able to control its crowds. Hamas and Hezbollah are secretly in there fermenting danger and terrorism, and it's like a tinderbox at the moment. And then a few days ago, there was this massive military exercise between the US and Israel, the largest in Israel's history, in which they simulated an attack on Iran, sending a message across to Iran. And that again adds to that 30 seconds in that clock, as the world potentially stands on the brink of a Middle East war, out of which possibly could be an Armageddon and our Lord's return. The world is in fear of these things. One of the objects of the Netanyahu government is to bring Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords fold. At the moment, they're still resisting. And this particular article went through and looked at some of the objections that Saudi Arabia has to joining the Abraham Accords. But Netanyahu has made it very clear, as far as he's concerned, that's our number one priority, to enfold the Saudi Arabia into this arrangement. And we know from Scripture that this is the, the Dedan, the Sheba of Ezekiel 38, and they will eventually come into the fold. Dangerous year, but exciting prophetically as far as the Word of God is concerned. Now, all of this, brothers and sisters, brings us to what we're going to consider this evening. And really, it's a consideration of one of the most obscure and cryptic prophecies in the Scriptures, Isaiah chapter 21. And I'm sure that as it was read this evening, you're probably scratching your head thinking, what is this chapter about? And why is it significant? And prophetically, what does this mean for us as brethren and sisters? It is a most cryptic prophecy, but remarkable in a number of really key areas that get us to think about why this is in the record for us. It's the burden against the desert of the sea, verses 1 to 10, a vision against Juma in verses 11 to 12, and Arabia in verses 13 to 15. So we're going to focus our attention this evening on the areas in which this prophecy actually speaks about, because it's in these areas where dramatic changes are occurring and will continue to occur. Now, verse 1 commences with a paradox, the burden of the desert of the sea. Now, how can you have, the word desert means wilderness, how can you have a wilderness and a sea? <coughs> Most unusual expression, wilderness and the sea. That doesn't make sense when you first look at that. Well, we know from verse 9 that, that this is a prophecy about the fall of Babylon. And what we find, brethren and sisters, is, is that in the days of Babylon, and it's a little bit there today, there is, in fact, a whole area around the Euphrates Valley where Babylon was established, great marshes and wetlands that were in the middle of all of this huge plain. That's why Jeremiah 51 talks about Babylon upon many waters. Now, now Babylon is nowhere near the sea, but, but it sits on this huge marshland. And, of course, the Babylonians and the Assyrians had the engineering capacity to be able to channel all of those marshes into, into canals and conduits and irrigation channels. Very skillfully done. Those marshlands today are disappearing. The, the Euphrates is not only spiritually drying up, politically drying up, but also literally drying up. And those marshlands are diminishing very, very rapidly. But in the days of Babylon, they were everywhere. So, so, so here's a prophecy about a wilderness of waters. And that's the basis of Revelation 17, isn't it? Remember Revelation 17? Come on, I'll show you the judgment on the great whore that sits on many waters. And he took me into the wilderness. It's the same thing. A wilderness of waters. And we find in actual fact that, that even the Assyrians and Babylonians themselves depicted on their particular columns the marshlands and, and the wetlands surrounding Babylon. It's a, it's a huge feature. And there they are with a little boat going through the marshlands, pursuing their enemies who are hiding in all those areas. So, so, so this particular prophecy is, is about a city sitting on a wilderness of waters, the basis for Revelation 17. And what is intriguing is, is that this, this vision, this, this, this disastrous prophecy about Babylon, 
cryptic though it is, has a very singular focus, which is relevant to us. I mean, there are many chapters that detail the fall of Babylon, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, other prophecies in Isaiah, which give a more complete and detailed description, almost blow by blow, of the defeat and fall of Babylon. This chapter is different. This is only 10 verses. But, but the key point, brethren citizens, is, is that seven times in this chapter, we have this theme, this idea of watching. And more than that, there is in the chapter two distinct watchmen, as we will see. There's Babylon's watchman and there's God's watchman, and they stand in absolute contrast. So you see that there's a relevance, isn't there, that in the fall of Babylon, which of course we know represents eventually a latter-day fall of Babylon the Great, there is impregnated in this chapter this theme of watching, watchman. Very deliberately so. There are the verses there, if you want to colour those words in. Stand out in the chapter. Well, let's, let's read this prophecy, shall we? As whirlwinds of the south, the Negev, pass through, so it cometh from the desert from a terrible land. And that word whirlwinds is the Hebrew word hurricanes. It's a dramatic hurricane zipping through the desert. And it was unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. This, this advancing force that was to destroy Babylon could not be stopped in, in any respect. And it would come from an uninhabited land. It would come from a terrible land, and the Hebrew there means a, a, a fearful land. And the invaders of Babylon came from that region which was generally outside the scope of Jewish experience, far to the east in Elam, a land not known by the Israelites in general, an empty place, a terrifying place. And that particular force that would come against Babylon, we know to be the Medes and the Persians. And, and, and the reason why Babylon was to fall, among other things, was its treachery, and it's greed. It's a grievous vision, and the Hebrew word means intense, because, you see, Babylon itself needed that intense judgment. It is a power that through the years has been treacherous and evil and covetousness, as it went through the Middle East, despoiling people's treasuries, destroying nations, transferring populations across the Middle East in their thousands, upsetting the whole world, the then-known world, because it's time to actually reward that power. And so is Babylon the Great. For 2,000 years, this power has raped nations, robbed them of spirituality, given them the evil doctrines, fleeced them blind, until within Rome itself is a fantastic array of wealth and display of power and authority. That will go. Now, as far as this particular prophecy was concerned in relation to Isaiah's day, th there was to be this, this tremendous relief that Babylon would be destroyed. See, verse 2, Go up, O Elam, besiege, O media, all the sighing thereof have I made to cease. And, and this, this sighing is, is this, this collective sense of relief that, that, the, that the then known world would feel after Babylon had been destroyed and, and the heel of the oppressor had been removed. And in exactly the same way, brothers, is when our Lord returns and Babylon the Great, the Roman Catholic system which permeates the world, almost a quarter of the population are Catholics, there will be this intense relief that has been removed. And, and, you know, Isaiah himself wasn't unmoved by that. Oh, he felt, he felt across his stomach pains. He felt sick to his stomach listening to this. And notice the language of verse 3, as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. And it was the Apostle Paul that picked that language up and dropped it into the first epistle to the Thessalonians. This, that's where he got the language from, brothers and sisters. You know the signs of the times. It's like a woman in travail. This is where he got it from. And, and, and Isaiah himself, he had no sensitivity towards Babylon. His sensitivity was towards the fate of God's people 
as that invasion took place and Babylon was to be destroyed. That's where his sensitivity lay, and he's there with cramps, awful cramps, fearfulness as to what would happen to the Jewish people, what would happen to God's people, and all of that. So in verse 5, we come to this ironic command given to Babylon. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise ye princes, and anoint the shield. Now this is Babylon's watchman. This is Babylon's watchman. First thing is, have a party. Prepare the table. They're about to lose their lives that night, but don't worry, put the party on. Secondly, oh, let, let's put somebody in the watchtower. We, we, we may need that person, but, but don't worry, the party will go on. Eat, drink, arise. Eat, drink? You know, the Lord picked those two words up in Luke chapter 17, didn't he? As it was the days of Noah, the days of Lot. They ate, they drank. That's the behavior of Babylon. This, this inability to be able to look to the future, to see the urgency that the end is coming. This is Babylon's watchman. You see, brothers and sisters, the watchman in Babylon has no idea that the end's coming. And sometimes we can fall into that same trap. Things just go on. We're 23 years past the year 2000, turn of the millennium, and time just goes on. And there is a very strong, very strong philosophical connection sometimes with, well, let's just, let's just continue life as it is. And eat and drink is really, I guess, the obsession of today's world. Cooking shows on every channel, on TV. Everywhere you go, food, pleasure, entertainment. That's Babylon, and the watchman couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. Now in verse 6, we have a different kind of watchman. And being set in this chapter, brothers and sisters, it is a massive warning to us as we see the fate of Babylon the Great about to go under. So the Lord God says to Isaiah, I want you to go and set a watchman. And I want you to declare exactly what you see. And there, brothers and sisters, is one of the first qualifications of a true watchman. To declare what we see. No embellishments, no half-truths, no crotchets. We're going to report exactly what we see. And what do we see out there? What's your perception of the dangers of this world? What's my perception of that? Are we alert to the philosophies of evangelicalism, postmodernism, theistic evolution, moral behavior? Because this watchman tells it as he sees it. Absolute in contrast to Babylon's watchman who just partying away. And in verse 7, this is what he saw. The authorised version says, he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. Uh, let me just give you the sense of the Hebrew, as we have there. He saw not a couple of horsemen, the Hebrew was procession. He saw a procession of cavalry, pairs of horsemen, procession of asses, procession of camels. So, so, so what he's describing, brothers and sisters, is he's describing the advance of the army towards Babylon. In the words of Revelation 16, it's preparing the way of the kings of the east. The invasion force is on its way. A massive procession, and it's going absolutely silently. So silently that the command is, listen sharply, listen sharply. You know, the watchman is straining to hear the advance of this army. And that silent advance, brethren and sisters, is really, to the watchman, the need for increased alertness. Now, we know that the Lord will come shortly. He's on his way, as it were. And, 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 and there's a sense that the watchman needs to be more alert as he sees the procession coming to take this awful enemy, Babylon the Great. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, whether over the last two, three, four years, whether we have been more alert or less alert, whether we've been more acutely aware of the dangers that face our ecclesias here, our families, or whether we've been less alert and let things slip by. And as that silent host, 
That procession came, brought closer to closer and closer to its, to its target. Listen carefully. Listen attentively, says God. Don't, don't lessen that sense of watching. And verse 8, as the margin has more specifically, he cried as a lion. Now, I want you to picture the drama of this. So here's the watchman, whether it's Isaiah or someone he trusted or appointed. And this watchman is looking, peering the distance, seeing, seeing this very silent column of, of, of invaders coming towards Babylon, not, showing, not, not knowing precisely when they're going to reach Babylon and not understanding precisely how they're going to take Babylon, but nevertheless seeing that and, and, and listening, carefully listening. And all of a sudden he stands back and with a huge roar, breaking the silence, you can't mistake the roar of a lion. My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime and I am set in my ward whole nights. I wonder whether we're like that. Alert day and night. Never leaving our post, as it were, spiritually. And no one could mistake this, this roaring, roaring beast as, as the watchman cries out into the night, to the silence of that night. I've been standing there day and night, Lord, faithfully watching, faithfully alerting, faithfully pointing out the dangers from my watchtower. I, I wonder whether we could say that, brothers and sisters, in our own lives, in our families, in our ecclesia. Now in verse 9, he sees the invader come back. No longer is it a procession of horses, it's just a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. But their message was absolutely significant. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all her graven images broke into the ground. Baal, Marduk, Nebo, St. Christopher, Mary, St. Thomas, St. So-and-so, gone. And in fact, in the Hebrew, that, that idea of a chariot of men is really more precisely the chariot of a man. There's a sim single chariot that comes out. And, and of course... In, in the latter-day context, in the prophetic context, that's going to be the cherubic chariot that comes forth from that war. And, and, and the fall of Babylon was, was exactly that language. Jeremiah 51, verse 8. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. It's the language picked up in Revelation. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But the watchmen have been faithful to their post. Now, this prophecy wasn't just for intellectual interest. In verse 10, we read, O my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Now, the ESV correctly translates that, O my threshed and winnowed one. That's the Jewish people. Threshed and winnowed. It's the language of the harvest. It's the language of Armageddon. And in that whole process, they will be threshed and winnowed in every respect. But that prophecy is for you, and by extension for us as well, isn't it? Now, all of that, brothers and sisters, speaks of a latter-day application. All that language... Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It's picked up in Revelation 14 and 18, as we have there on, on the screen. Babylon will be destroyed by whirlwinds from afar. That's the language of Isaiah 66, verse 15. The whirlwinds of the saints. It won't be the Medes and Persians who'll destroy Babylon the Great, the Roman Catholic system. It will be the antitype, my servant, my righteous one. The world will be eating and drinking, absorbed by the cares of this life. And we can't afford to be in that category. You know, Daniel was not invited to that feast. Or if he was invited, he refused to attend. He was not present in that feast. He was a watchman who abstained from all of that frivolity and evil. Our Lord warned us about those who just ate and drank and dispersed their life to the cares of this world. Catholic system will be destroyed by chariots and horsemen. And the lesson for us, brethren and sisters, is that we need to be faithful watchmen in all of that. And, and that's why the chapter is here. Cryptic brief, none of the details of other chapters, but focusing on the faithfulness of watchmen, keeping alert, making sure that the influences out there don't affect our children, our grandchildren, having the wisdom to deal with that, the alertness to deal with that. So what are the responsibilities of the watchmen? Well, we know from Ezekiel 33 that Ezekiel as a watchman had the prime responsibility of warning of impending danger. 
It's no good yelling out to people when the danger has hit everybody over the head. It's forewarning. There's an influence, there's a challenge, there's a difficulty, there's an obstruction, it's coming, and this is what we need to do about that. It's part of being vigilant and sober. It's opposite to eating and drinking, isn't it? The language used. Uh, but in, in watching others, we need to watch ourselves as well. Keeping watch over what we say and what we think. Personally, keeping our lives in order. In Isaiah 62, we, we have the watchman on Israel's walls ever praying, never ceasing to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the peace of Israel, the coming of Zion. And you know, for instance, within the brotherhood, there is a lessening, isn't there? A lessening interest in Israel. This is a general statement. Does Israel and the hope of Israel still have that same sense of burning desire in us as it was 20 years ago? We should never cease to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. As the Lord said, watch and pray always. Always. And the watchfulness is accompanied by prayer. Did you pray for others, brothers and sisters, consistently? Do I pray for others consistently? And that was the, the very word that Jesus used in the context of the Armageddon. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. So it's not an irrelevant exhortation. That's why it's in this chapter. Watching, keeping our garments, is an essential and critical part of a latter-day stance against evil. Now, coming back to Isaiah 21, we, we move from Babylon to another area of the globe. In verse 11, the burden of Juma. So where on earth is Juma? Well, Juma is as the map there suggests, roughly the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. Okay. And if we took a photograph of that region of the northwest of Saudi Arabia, that's what we see. So, so we need to think, why is this prophecy, given in the latter-day chapter, significant when you look at that kind of vista? Well, in ancient times, Juma was in fact, because he descended from Ishmael, they stood in that region at an oasis crossroads. And there are some of the ruins of, of ancient Juma. And in, in ancient times, in that crossroads, it was a little bit like uh, Petra is or was in the Nabataeans. It, it was that, that exchange route, that, that refreshing route where you could receive water and supplies and then move on to the next caravan area. So, so, so there's something significant about this region prophetically, which Isaiah is going to point out. Let's read verse 11. The burden of Juma, he calleth to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? So here we have the map again, and, and there is Juma. And the watchman is in this area of Juma. And he hears a voice from Seir. Now, now where is Seir? Well, Seir is this mountainous region there, which would be the area of, I guess, southern Jordan today, around the area of Petra, if any of you know the geography of Jordan. So, so this is astounding. We're here in a latter-day context where we've got a watchman in Juma in this northwestern part of Saudi Arabia, and you think, what's he doing there? And he hears a voice coming out of Jordan. And this voice is shouting across and saying, Watchman, what of the night? So here we have, brothers and sisters, we've got a Gentile in the area of Seir, ancient Edom, modern Jordan, asking a Jewish prophet to give him an answer. And the message is one of desperation. He repeats the question twice. How much longer is the night going to last for? Now, this is unprecedented. There's no way in the world that in the times of Isaiah or even around that epoch you'd ever have an Edomite asking a Jew how long is this night going to last for? Interesting, isn't it, the way the, the record is presenting this? So in verse 12, the watchman replies. And he says, look, the morning cometh and also the night. Uh, th there will be some respite. Night, of course, is a symbol of darkness and tragedy and devastation. The morning's coming, said the watchman, but there's also, you've got to endure that night. 
Now we know that the morning is a symbol of the return of Jesus Christ, when the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his beams. The dawning of a new day, 2 Samuel 23, and verse 1 to 3. So the morning's coming, says the watchman. It's coming, but, but so also is the night. There's going to be further darkness, there's going to be further desolation until that light arrives. And in a latter-day context, that's exactly what's going to happen, as we see in a moment. Staggering when you think about that. We know from these three quotations that uh, the Lord himself would arise from the region of the deserts of Sinai and move into this region just prior to Armageddon. Psalm 68 talks about the Lord in his sanctuary, coming with thousands of chariots. Deuteronomy uh, 33 talks about the dawning from Sinai, the dawning from Mount Paran. Habakkuk chapter 3 talks about him coming from Teman to Mount Paran. He spent a whole night on this particular subject. Uh, and what that is, brothers and sisters, is, is this advance by the Lord and his saints, God willing us. Habakkuk describes it as, as an advance, brethren and sisters, in, in which before him goes the plague. Now, we know all about plague and COVID and all that. This is a far more devastating, far more devastating judgment as the whole area, in fact, becomes a battle zone. As the Lord advances up into that region, into the region of Seir, and this is where the voice comes from, isn't it? Seir. Habakkuk says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. Now, this is interesting. About uh, five or six years ago, we, we had the opportunity to actually go into this region here of the Sinai Peninsula, south of Eilat. And as we went down the coast there to, towards Sinai, there were thousands and thousands of holiday shacks. When we looked across the other side, which is the median of that verse, we saw also on the other side of the shore were thousands and thousands of, of holiday shacks. Now, these are the tents, the temporary dwellings of Cushan. You see, when the Lord advances up from Sinai, there's going to be a lot of people in the way. I imagine they're on holiday when that happens. But all that region there, all these temporary dwellings, all the way down the coastline on both sides, fearful, shaking as the Lord makes his march. And we know from, from, uh, from Isaiah 34 that there will be a great slaughter in Seir. This is why the voice is coming from Seir. Watchman, what of the night? How long is the night going to last for? Because you see, in that region of Seir, as a prelude to Armageddon, there is a massive battle. Huge conflict. Armageddon is a series of campaigns culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Russian forces. Sweeps down the coast, takes Egypt, comes back to Seir, then Jerusalem. It's a series of campaigns. And, and the enormous destruction in that region of Seir, as God's sword of judgment comes upon that region, is such to have this devastating cry. How long is the night going to go for? And the voice comes back and says, morning's coming, but the night is still also going to come as well. Now, before we look at this in a bit more detail, let's move back on to another obscure prophecy in Isaiah 15. I'd like you to come across to Isaiah 15. Now, Isaiah 15 and 16 are, are twin chapters that actually belong in the same prophecy, and it's the burden of Moab. So, where's Moab? Well, Moab is in that region there, within that dotted blue line. It's the area of Middle Jordan, just near Seir. And the burden of Moab in Isaiah 15 and 16 takes a number of past events and combines them with the future. So, for example, in chapter 15, verses 1 to 9, we, we have the devastation of Moab in one night. In chapter 16, we have this appeal coming from Israel to Moab, saying, send a lamb to the ruler. Moab refuses to listen to that appeal. And then in verses 3 and 5, we have a latter-day Aside, And the reason why we say it's a latter-day aside is because in verse 5, in mercy shall the throne be established. That hasn't happened yet. That's the Lord's throne where the king shall judge in righteousness and judgment. So we know that verses 3 to 5 is a latter-day command. Then we turn back to the, the present 
we find that Moab's pride is denounced and finally the destruction of Moab's economy. So, so slipped in this, in this prophecy of Moab's destruction, which occurred in the days of Isaiah, there are these couple of verses that have a latter-day connotation, verses 3 to 5. Verse 3 says, take counsel, this is talking to Moab, take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday, hide the outcasts, bewray not him that wandereth. So, so, so verse 3, verse 4, leads up to verse 5, which is the establishment of the throne in Israel. So here's a command to the Jordanian government. Bring in your counsel, form a decision. That's the idea behind the Hebrew. We need a decision. I want you to make a shadow across the land. And, of course, a shadow in Scripture is a symbol of protection, defense. And I want you to actually look after the outcasts. Now, these outcasts are defined in the next verse as God's outcasts. So here is Moab, the Jordanian government, being asked, in a latter-day context, to look after God's outcasts. We've got, we've got Jewish people fleeing for their life, and the command goes across to the Jordanian government and says, I want you to actually protect them. Now, that word beret means don't reveal. They're wandering, they're dazed, they're shattered by, by this invasion of Russia. I don't want you to reveal them, I want you to hide them care for them, shadow them. As I said, God calls them mine outcasts. I want them to dwell with you, Moab, and I want them to be a cover, a hiding place, a protection, a shelter from the storm. The spoiler, the spoiler himself has arisen. Now, we know that that language is used in Ezekiel 38 to describe the Russian host. Art thou come to take a spoil? He is the spoiler. And the, the, the answer to the Jordanians is, is that, look, that individual, that power is going to come to an end. That's the language of Daniel 11, verse 45. He shall come to his end. The oppressors, those who tread down, are to be consumed. That leads in to the description of the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5. Now, isn't that astounding when you think about that? What is interesting is, is that when we look at today, we find, in fact, that, that God is subtly preparing the way for this looking after the Jewish people. See, at the moment, Jordan has 672,952 registered refugees. That's over half a million refugees registered, not counting the unregistered. 19.5% live in camps, the rest scattered around the country. This Bedouin Arab hospitality has been extended by the Jordanian people to Syrians and refugees who are fleeing warfare in the north. God is preparing them for a greater a greater work in relation to his own outcasts. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, here is, not particularly bright here on the, on the screen, but, but this is the uh, Zatari refugee camp. At one time, it held 200,000 people. 200,000 people. Three and a half by nearly two kilometers. A little city within a city. And it's that kind of thing that's going to happen. And God says, look after my people as they're fleeing from the enemy. Now, let's come back to Isaiah 21. So, verse 12, we, we read this. The watchman said, the morning comes... And also the night, the night's still going to endure, there'll still be destruction, devastation, that huge slaughter in Isaiah 34. And then he says, if ye will inquire, inquire. But I want you to return and come. Now, now if ever there was a cryptic command, this is it. So here, here, was, here is the power in Seir, in Jordan, devastated by the destruction of Isaiah 34, and... Asking the watchman for some response. The watchman says, well, if I, I, I want you to inquire. And if you're going to inquire, I want you to inquire properly. See, because that Hebrew word is an unusual Hebrew word. The theological word book of the Old Testament says, actually, that, that it's, it, it's a, a search for that which is covered or sealed. It's a special word that's used. So, so it's, it's like, the, like the watchman saying, well, look, there's a secret here. 
And, and if, you, if you really want to know, if you really want to inquire, then inquire properly. It's no good asking me what's going to come during the night and, and what's coming in the morning. The prophet is saying, I want you to understand something deeper here. I want you to uncover a secret. And more so, he said, if you really are seeking the answer, I want you to return. That's mean, that means to come back to God, to turn to God and come. So here's an invitation by God to these powers in Jordan saying, if you really want to understand, you need to turn back to me and you want to seek me with all your heart and I want you to come to me. Isn't that interesting? The survivors of all of that contest, the survivors of all of that evil are going to be humbled by that event and they're going to want to find out why. And the prophet says, well, if you really do really inquire, then I want you to turn and come. Isn't that interesting? This is the beginning, isn't it, of the education of these people in the region. How else is God going to turn these Muslim powers, these Arabic powers, into people who accept the covenants of promise? This is the beginning of their education. Now, in verse 13, we've got the last prophecy, the burden upon Arabia. Verse 13 says, it's a burden upon Arabia. But, but we see from verse 13 that Dedan is involved. Verse 14, Timah is involved. And verses 16 to 17, Kedar is involved. Now, these are all subsections of the Arabian Peninsula. If we could put them on a map, there they are. Kedar, Juma, Timar, and the two Dedans, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now notice it's, it's all up in that northern part of Saudi Arabia. If we look at a, at a modern map, the definition isn't all that particularly good, is it, in some of these slides? But you'll see there that these are the key towns on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And uh, Tabuk is half a million people up there in the north, northwest of the country. Jeddah has five million people, Riyadh five million, and so on. But, but what is intriguing is, is that... Oh, What's intriguing is that's not showing up at all. But that slide shows you the, the development by the Saudi Arabian government of key economic cities. There's six of them. And those key economic cities will, in fact, dotted around the country. You see how we've got Tabuk and Hayil. That's in the region of Kedar and Juma. And these economic cities are designed to be cities which are going to bring prosperity to that region. The land is being prepared in that part of the country for a very significant work. Now let's come back to verse 13. The burn of Arabia, in the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye travelling companies of Dadanim. The inhabitants of the land of Timar brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. Now this is a challenging verse. The forests of Arabia. Now you saw that photograph of Juma, just absolute waste desert. Yet in this verse, we have the forests of Arabia. And in actual fact, that Hebrew word means precisely that, a forest, a thicket, a wooded height. The Hebrew word is used of orchards and a forest of Carmel and Lebanon. Now, now you saw the photograph there of Juma in that northwestern part of Saudi Arabia, and yet here we have forests. There has been a massive change in this region. And the people who are there are these traveling companies of Dedanim. I'm not going to talk much about those. They're part of that northwestern people. And, and in verse 14, alongside Juma, Timar, and, and they'd have the land of Timar, says verse 14, they're going to bring water to him that's thirsty. So we've got in the desert forests, and we've got springs of water to the extent that they can, in fact, water and look after refugees. And I want you, Arabia, just like the Jordanians, to actually bring water to him that's thirsty. Because these people are fleeing from the sword, from the drawn sword, from the grievousness of war. So not only will the Jewish people file across Jordan, they'll go into northwest Saudi Arabia. And God there, brothers and sisters, in the forest of Arabia, is asking for people to care for his people. Now, once again, God is preparing the way. 
35% of Saudi Arabia's roughly 30 million inhabitants are not inhabitants as citizens. It's a third of the country. The kingdom is home to an estimated half a million Rohingya, 300 to 400,000 Palestinians, and nearly a million Syrians. It's huge, absolutely huge. Again, this, this Arab hospitality, this Bedouin hospitality, is the kingdom is being prepared to be able to look after refugees, and particularly God's refugees. I'm going to skip a couple of these. Now, the future of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula is really quite interesting. Come across to Isaiah 60. I've got to put all this together and draw it into a, into a, a focal picture. Isaiah 60 is the transformation of the Jewish kingdom. It's an incredible chapter, a marvellous chapter, in which the nations pour into Zion. The gates open 24 hours as, as people come in to rebuild this, this, this nation devastated by war. And, and here's the contribution by the Arab powers. In verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. Now, if we look at the map, th this in fact is precisely the region we're talking about. Midian is that northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. Sheba is the region of Yemen today. And, and what that's describing is, is a contribution by these people of spices and incense and gold from this region into the temple. Now, if you put the 12 cantons across the Middle East like that, and we have there the forest of Arabia, we have Midian straddling the last of those cantons, and in Isaiah chapter 60, we have camels bringing gold and spices. Now, camels are desert animals. So whilst the greater Israel will be fertile, the, the south won't be like that. There'll still be that desert region. Now, how is God going to get forests in that region? This is a plan of the tectonic plates in the Middle East. And you'll see there that the Saudi Arabian Peninsula is actually ringed by a series of plates. You have the Eurasian plate that's there in Turkey and through Iran. You have the Arabian plate. You have the African plate. And you have the Anatolian plate, which is in Turkey. And all of these forces are pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling. In past times, this, this right-hand map, that is the volcanic activity within the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. I never knew that until I looked at that closely. In, in fact, here's an aerial shot of a string of volcanoes down that side the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. So what will happen is, brothers and sisters, is that, that when God fractures the earth and, and the Dead Sea rises, the whole of that Arabian Peninsula, the whole of that plate is going to convulse as well. What we find is, is that Saudi Arabia has over 2,000 dormant volcanoes. The majority of those are in the middle, in Medina. And did you know that the last eruption in that region was in 1256, which nearly wiped out Mohammed's tomb? And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that when that plate goes, Mohammed's tomb will go with it. And all the holy places of the Arab world will just disappear. And those volcanoes, who knows what will happen to those volcanoes? But in all of that region, this huge seismic activity will produce tremendous Tremendous springs of water. At the moment, oh, it's a pity that this resolution is not particularly good here, but there on, on the left-hand side, these are the aquifers that currently exist below the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And all of those aquifers will come to the surface until finally you'll have this forest in Arabia. Astounding. The fact, brothers and sisters, that the angels will pass on to us as the saints this tremendous sense of technology to be able to manipulate whole Arabian plates, African plates, and bring to crescendo all of this purpose is a fantastic work. Imagine the transfer of knowledge that we need to get to get up to speed with that kind of convulsion to produce those kind of results. And those people, those Arabian people, those Shiva Didan people, will bring their gold, their incense, and says the record in Isaiah 60, they shall show forth the praises of Yahweh. Words picked up in the New Testament. What will make 
Saudi Arabians, Arabic powers, Jordan, Jordanians, Africans show forth the praises of Yahweh. The convulsion that happens around the world will have a similar effect upon those people as the earthquake has on the Jewish people. It will humble them, bring them to the dust, destroy all that's Muslim, and bring to light the power and wonder of the God of Israel. An incredible purpose. And these nations are preparing for that now. Well, back in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 7, Kedar, now this is, this is Isaiah 21, these are the Arabs in that northwestern quarter. Kedar and the Baoth is in the region through there. If we place those on the map of the 12 cantons, they actually come within those cantons of Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun, and Gad. And the record says that all that produce, all of those rams and sheep and lambs, which they were famous for in the ancient world, will again be seen in that region. And I'm going to allow them to be acceptable upon my altar. Gentile animals representing Gentile people supporting temple worship I will accept them upon mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. In the end, brethren and sisters, we come to Isaiah 42. Let's come to this in conclusion. Eventually, that whole region of the Arabian Peninsula is referred to in Isaiah 42, verse 10 and 11. Sing unto Yahweh a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar doth inhabit, let the inhabitants of the rock, Selah, that's in Petra in Jordan, let them shout the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto Yahweh and declare his praise in the islands. And there, brethren and sisters, with all of that incredible convulsion of nature, the commands to go forth to look after the Jewish people in their adversity, the returning of these people to God will eventually have this tremendous, tremendous result that there'll be choirs singing in northwest Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Syria. All of those regions will sing praises to Almighty God, and God in the end will be glorified. The way is being prepared. The time will be soon, brethren and sisters, when our Lord will be in the earth to make these things happen. May it be that as we understand and appreciate the power and majesty of Almighty God, that we too may join with these people in that future age, glorifying the house of God's glory.